cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And uh, Ramon is present. I do apologize for sounding like uh, Gwede after Pusa Thursday. but I, I, As against your usual voice. Yes, I have man flu. And it's, oh, really? extre- it's extremely debilitating. Shall we call 999? I think it's 911. Whatever it is, I've never called it because well, I've got flu too and I've never thought of calling it. But I thought we'd do it for you. Ooh, gee whiz. I mean, <laughs> The premier has just arrived and she's already giving yeah, you the nonsense. matriarchy is killing you. The mothership has landed. <laughs> right, so uh, since our guest has introduced herself already, uh, as you've heard and as you may know if you're listening to this, our special guest this week is the premier of the Western Cape, the former leader of the DA, Helen Zilla. And uh, I think I got that. And uh, if you don't know this lady's history in terms of this country, I would uh, urge you to go do some reading seems to be some very ignorant people on Twitter. Can we get to the real big question everyone's asking, which is you've got a new granddaughter? Have I got a new granddaughter? But if you start off like that, you'll spend the rest of the podcast looking at pictures of her. (laughs) She is the most beautiful, intelligent, lovely little girl, and she's nine weeks old. Maybe after my daughter. Who happens to be four months old, but nevertheless. Oh, goodness. I've, I've opened a can of worms. Yeah, you have. But but frankly, you know, as they always say, if you knew how wonderful it is to have grandchildren, you would have skipped straight over the kids and gone straight for the grandkids. Oh, is that so? Well, hopefully I will know that in how many years? 40 years? I don't even know. I don't even know anymore. You're going to protect your daughter with a shotgun but, that long. Oh, believe me. She'll <laughs> protect herself with a shotgun at this rate. But Helen, thank yeah. you for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. So, I mean, a bit of a quiet week. Yeah, you know, business as usual. Yeah, business as usual. Another day at the office. <laughs> and I think, I think the, the real lesson we have learned is to number tweets. That is a good lesson. That is a good lesson. But I also think Twitter is a medium like no other. And I think... Whether someone is live tweeting you or just trying to get the gist of what you said or whether you're tweeting yourself and whether they're numbered or not, it's a very, very complex medium. People think it's simple because it's 140 characters, but it's unbelievably complex. It is. It is difficult to have the debate that you are seeking on a, on a medium like that, I'm afraid to say, because context is everything and you cannot see context uh, through words on a screen. No, that's absolutely true, and you can't hear tone of voice, and you can't pick up the experience or the relevance of the experience or anything like that. And uh, it's extraordinarily brash and bland, Twitter, at the same time. You can only put it into so many characters, and you have to cut out every unnecessary word, and in doing so, it comes across like a stick in the eye often. (coughs) Oh, bless you. I've got. Uh, I've got I'm sicker uh, than Roman. Two English patients in 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 the studio with me. Um, I'm, I'm French. I'm definitely going to be diseased when I leave here. I'm French, and the premier's German, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Okay. So, all right. Obviously, I, I'm sure most people listening will have heard uh, or seen 
um, this morning. Uh, I don't want to really rehash a lot of what happened with regards to the the tweet itself or um, your opinions and and all of that. I think I think it's been made clear over time. Plus, this morning um, you sat with the leader of the DA and you issued a apology, which was an unreserved apology. Um, I think more more than more than that, I'd like to discuss why it is in South Africa we battle to have the difficult conversations. Well, we first have to understand that we can't have difficult conversations on the medium of Twitter. That's number one. Number two, and I've done a lot of reading on this now and trying to understand why some countries have very important complex debates that go to the heart of their issues and why it is hard to do that here at the moment. And my biggest question is, would it over time get easier or more difficult? Now, I happen to believe that colonialism was a terrible thing, especially for the people subjected to it. So the debate is not about whether colonialism was right or wrong, it was wrong. The debate is, now that it has happened, what do we do to build a common future? That's the debate. And it's not an easy debate. It's a very complex debate because, as you know, in South Africa, there are many, many different ways of looking at that issue and of crafting pathways into the future for everybody. And in many ways, it's a premature debate. It's a kind of debate you can have in many of the places that I've been in the world because the scars are not that raw and the wounds are not that open anymore. And because of economic growth and because of the fact that many, many people have got their place in the sun and many more percentage-wise of the population than in South Africa, people feel ready to have a debate that they may not have been able to have 20 years ago. <clears throat> My big worry is that we must make sure that the space for those kinds of debates grow rather than diminishes. And that doesn't mean to say that one wants to ever have a debate about what colonialism was right or wrong, although people are entitled to their opinions, I happen to think it was wrong. But the debate we urgently need to have is about what it's going to take to turn South Africa into an inclusive, vibrant economy with an opportunity for everybody and what kind of policies and attitudes that's going to take. I don't think that the whites are the villains preventing that in South Africa. I don't believe that whites are the main blockage to that. Indeed, I think that 90% of whites are actually trying to contribute and make a difference in a positive way. And the whole debate about whites being the break on the new South Africa, I think, is in many instances misplaced. And so that's a debate we need to have. And the whole issue of white monopoly capital and whiteness and critical race theory needs to be debated, needs to be debated urgently. But we have to angle into that debate carefully. You, with regards to, you know, you bring up critical race theory, which then leads to whiteness and white privilege and, and all of those concepts. Um, it doesn't seem as if we can have a lot of debate. It seems as if those on that side of the argument have decided there's no debate to have. Um, and... 
in addition, I find that you know critical critical this critical race theory is, is essentially Marxist theory. Um, a lot of this also goes towards the history revisionism we have, which is to say that we want to either forget history or forget what happened um, rather than saying this was terrible and then how do we move forward so to me they the two things go together um how do we how do we pot- potentially start to have that debate um in the public discourse when we have a lot of people pushing not to have the debate and who feel it's already decided well you see first of all i think that critical race theory is the absolute opposite of marxism it introduces race instead of class analysis but after that, it's pretty similar. And what makes it even worse, in, in my sense, is that people are immediately judged on what they look like, on the color of their skin, and a conclusion is drawn about their privilege, their attitude, their history, their politics under apartheid, everything. And so it's like a package deal. Color of your skin, this is who you are because of the attributes that people ascribe to a particular group. Now, that's what's dangerous. And I think what we need to do, irrespective of any other attribute, is to say, what kind of person are you? Have you got integrity? Have you got courage? Have you got the ability to take responsibility? Have you got the ability to make a good judgment in a complex situation? Have you got the ability to learn from your mistakes? Those are attributes that people can have of whatever color, class, religious background, or whatever. And it is that way that I think South Africans need to try and work towards seeing each other, not as race first, race defined, and then slowly have to prove that you're not a bigot and that you're not an apartheid supporter. People must be started at the base of having an equal chance to prove that they are honorable human beings and work from there. Well, I mean, it's just a sense of uh, treating people like individuals with their own internal characteristics and ideas and interrogating, very importantly, interrogating the idea in their heads, not the person promulgating the idea. Today in the the press conference, you did say there might be an issue about the identity of a person and the presentation of an idea. Um, And I think that is relevant to some degree, but a lot of people conflate person and idea, whereas the idea is the important one. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, it's called the fallacy of genesis, I think, in logic. Where this idea originated is the problem, not potentially with the idea itself. Now, I'm not applying that to what I said. The fallacy of origin, that's right. The fallacy of origin is what they call it in philosophy. Now, Ultimately, in a completely free and open society, every idea should be evaluated on its own merits. In a society which is suffering as much from the legacy of the past, in which the past is so much with us still every day, and in which many ordinary black people who haven't made it into the middle class, and I'm fascinated to see that the middle class is now considerably bigger than what the black middle class is considerably bigger than the white middle class, which is as it should obviously be. Mm-hmm. And on the very, very rich list, it's sort of 50-50 almost. So 
there's been massive transformation in the middle and upper middle class. The big problem is that most of the very poor people in South Africa are black, and that would always be the case given our demographics because there are far more black people than white, so you'd expect far more black people in every category. The big trouble is that so many black people still see white people living as if nothing's changed. And that's why I can understand why this philosophy of whiteness and white privilege has such a hold. The great risk is that people don't see people as individuals, as Roman said. I mean, I certainly don't come from a background of white privilege, believe me. My parents came to South Africa as refugees with absolutely nothing and half their families murdered, or especially on my father's side, half his family murdered, and started again with absolutely nothing at all and tried to move into the middle class in a generation. And they succeeded in that. And obviously that's my wish for everybody. I, I would I would disagree with you in terms of I, I think a lot of the ideas that you talk about about the collectivization of people based on on characteristics assigned to a group is actually done by born frees and people in the middle class of all races uh, I must add um, the biggest opponents I have in so, on social media and in real life are middle class people both black and white who have an education who do well and. They pick on others within the middle class to explain poverty in what I call the underclass. Um, so it's not, it's not the poor. I, I can imagine if the poor feel like nothing has changed and I can imagine them thinking that uh, whites don't seem um, sorry for what has happened. But it's perpetuated by the middle class itself. There's no question about that. These ideas always come from universities first. That's why I watch very carefully what's happening in American universities because you can almost be sure that 18 months later they will appear on South African universities. And that is exactly what happened with critical race theory. Of course, there's a fundamental difference of demographic ratios in America and in South Africa, but that doesn't seem to matter. People simply take the ideas and apply them often in less than nuanced terms. And so it is a problem, and it's going to become an increasing problem, because just as Marxism said, capitalism is responsible for all of our problems, and that's why we will never get out of poverty until we deal with capitalism. Now people are saying, in the crudest form of this theory, South Africa's problems are due to whites and whiteness, and white privilege and inherited privilege, and if we get rid of that we'll all be out of poverty. Now, that is just as much a fallacy as the former analysis. And so I think it is relevant to have this debate that we need to have right now, is to talk about whether whites have a contribution to play that is not only self-flagellation and a hundred Hail Marys and mea culpas. I believe we do have a role to play, and I believe that a lot of white people are playing a role and have played a role and will continue to play a role in future. And their color of the skin should not in any way be the yardstick by how they're judged. Do you think the nature of the dialogue, which is that if 
certain people, and this can be of all races, but let's stick with with white folk for the moment. Um, if they poke their head up out of the parapet in the wrong way um, and are then annihilated for it, leads to an, a sort of unhealthy nature in our in our society, and and equally so for any other race group who feels if they don't push forward the the right party line, so to speak, um, that that they get called names and things. We, you know, uh, we've had a guest on the show before, Sikli and Gubesi, who has very um, oh, Sikli, yes. Um, you know, he's, he's a colleague he, of mine. He's he's got very uh, liberal views. Yes. And uh, he is regularly, basically called horrible racist things, um, because oh, welcome, welcome to the club, club, Sikle. <laughs> um, but but you know, so he's 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 commonly told, for example, he's he's not black enough, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm I'm just wondering the, the state of dialogue. Essentially, is, is is do you not think it's causing a, an immense amount of damage um, to to the country and to people who want to to do good? In some ways it is, and in quite a few ways it is. And it's interesting that there too, when people are being very, very offensive and even using hate speech, which I define very carefully, some people can get away with it and other people can't, and that is a double standard, and I think that is wrong. At the same time, all of this actually helps to toughen people up for the kinds of debates we need to have in the society. We want to live in a democracy, and in a democracy, the extent of free speech is the key yardstick. And many people are highly offensive, and particularly offensive to me. And that may toughen me up so that I'm not perhaps as empathetic or sensitive as I should be to other people. And I am not averse to a fight either. So those are not two great characteristics to have when you are entering the terrain of Twitter. But nevertheless, I think that people giving offense enables people to learn not to take offense and shrug these things off and learn that that is one of the prices we pay for living under democracy because almost Everything that anybody says is going to offend somebody. Absolutely. And they're going to get very upset about it. But we must toughen up on most things. I can understand, though, that where the the wounds are still very raw, it can really hurt. And the bottom line is that there are different categories within categories, if you know what I mean. I was the former leader of the DA. I've got 1.1 million followers on Twitter. I'm a highly controversial figure. And I have more traction that, than I could ever think. I don't see myself as anybody with traction when I tweet. I mean, I'm tweeting to the person across me in the room. I never think of it as the traction that it has. And underestimating your own impact is probably as dangerous on social media as overestimating your impact in life. I mean, um, yes. To, to some degree, I, have, I want to talk. Let's talk. Let's talk about freedom of speech for a little while, because mm. here's the thing about a, a democracy, and a lot of in a lot of countries that have been liberated and the democratic ideal has has come about, uh, especially in countries in Europe and South Africa and uh, places like that, people become very complacent about freedom. Yeah. It, you know, 
in lots of places people become complacent about freedom and that's why I look at a guy like Fleming Rose and take my hat off to him. Because Fleming Rose says, well, if you start closing down debates because people believe they are offensive, then in the end, what may be said in the democracy and what may be debated in the democracy gets determined by the people who make and take the most offense. And then you are literally enabling people to decide what may be discussed and you're inviting a whole range of people to be sensitive on what would otherwise be innocuous topics. So I think he's got a very important point there, and I think he's made that point exceptionally well. On the other hand, there is no country in the world that is more conscious of causing offense and where more people take offense than in the United States of America. People are always looking around to be offended by whatever anybody says. And okay, I also find Donald Trump's tweets very offensive, but I also find it a sign of a healthy democracy. And, you know, people offend each other in a democracy. Yeah, believe it or not, people people don't get along that well. It is a, sorry, Jonathan, yeah. it, is a, it is not, uh, it is relatively new where you have a diversity of cultures, religions, ethnicities living under one legal framework. That is 120 years old. Before, we used to live in our own tribes for thousands of years. It's not normal to be multicultural. It's completely abnormal to be either multicultural or democratic. And certainly, to be both is highly unusual. That is why when Henry Kissinger came to South Africa and met me a couple of years ago, in fact, it was in 2010 for the World Cup, he said, I wanted to come here to find out why South Africa is in the process of proving me wrong. I said it would be impossible in a deeply divided country on the basis of race and ethnicity for any single party based on values and principles to attract a people that could constitute a majority drawn from all sectors of that society on the basis of principles and values. And he said he could see that the DA was doing it and he wanted to ask me how and why. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that question. It's not easy to answer. And it gets harder and harder as you get closer to power for interesting reasons. But confronted we have to because if we move into the future thinking whites are the problem and black people are the solution just by definition without looking any further at any other attribute, we are not going to be able to make that critical transition, and I don't want to sound too sentimental about this, or I don't want to sound that I'm exaggerating, but I really do believe we have to get this right for the world because demographic shifts are so fundamental and societies are going to be so plural and so complex and so divided. And because people are inherently tribal, they all gravitate to the groups they feel comfortable with and share a culture with and share a language with and share the kind of upbringing with. So people gravitate to their own groups everywhere. And if that happens in South Africa, you can understand that we can never have a change of government through the ballot box, which means we can never have accountability fundamentally at the political level, which means we can never have a democracy. And as 
power abusers who have got an unassailable majority quickly learn nothing they can do will touch them, and they therefore do those things. And we've seen all the corruption, all the state capture, and all those kinds of things, the assumption of always winning an election and never being held to account. Yeah, so if I understand correctly, you hold a similar view to what I do, although you might be a bit more careful about it. But it is that in South Africa, we're yet to fully achieve our democracy because we started with what is set up as a democratic state in 1994, but we have yet to have a change of power through the ballot box. And in so doing that, we've hamstrung ourselves a little bit in terms of democracy because, as you mentioned, those in power still view themselves as untouchables and do as they please. You know, Jonathan, we have had a change of power through the ballot box. We did that in Cape Town in 2006. We did that in the Western Cape in 2009. We consolidated that position in subsequent elections. We've had that now in Tswane and Nelson Mandela Bay in Joburg and in a number of smaller municipalities. And it has been a very salutary lesson and a very important step towards a full democracy because the idea that the ANC can lose power because the voters hold them to account is not a weird idea anymore. Previously, it was completely out of the realm of possibility. Now people quite seriously debate whether it's possible for the ANC to win another election, and they debate that very, very seriously. Mm. And what kind of coalitions may come into existence and what they should look like and what the costs and benefits will be. People are talking about that all the time. So that is an enormous, enormous shift in our country and a very positive one. Ellen, a bit of a, well, for me and a few, a few of our listeners are quite interested in, in your answer to this. Is there space for a, a, a liberal party in South Africa? Because and I, so, and I base this on on research done by the Institute of Race Relations and others, mm. which state that the average South African is worried about the same thing as other South Africans, which is employment, security, education, economics, healthcare, housing, healthcare, land reform, racism. A lot of the issues in the ether mm-hmm. are not relevant to most South Africans. So, is there space for a liberal party in the vein of the DA? Well, you see, I always say it depends on what you mean by liberalism. If you run around all the time just talking about it and trying to win people over, it's a very challenging philosophy to support. Let's be quite honest. It's not easy. But the minute you've seen a broadly liberal government, as the DA government, let's say, in the Western Cape is, once you've had that kind of experience, given enough time, to consistently use money properly and improve infrastructure and improve opportunities, slowly, within five, ten years, people start noticing there's a difference. And then quite suddenly, there's a big difference. And it's not just happening coincidentally. It's happening because there are correct policies and a capable state and the rule of law. And this is a fascinating thing to watch with the very large number of refugees from Syria all over the world because they didn't really experience a capable state, a culture of accountability of rulers, or the rule of law. 
And they've come now often to highly democratic countries. And my big question is, in 20 years' time, will they be challenging the basis of those societies or will they find that the principles that you've just enumerated, which are the basis of the liberal project, are truly liberating for them in that they can pursue their own ends and not be judged and defined as part of a collective? So let's see whether the pull towards where you came from, your group, your religious, your tribal affiliations, is stronger than what we mostly intellectually and analytically know is the best for South Africa, which is all people working together. But it's really hard to get there. Indeed, it is hard to get there. So, I mean, the question is, how does the DA confront that fact whereby you were, if I may say you were, a classically liberal party? Now you, a little bit more, it appears to be pragmatic, for lack of a better word, in trying to gain as many votes as possible to gain power, which, which, is, which is fine. But how do you how do you juggle the two? Because if you say that people actually get to be liberal after five years, say, of liberalism within the area, it's a very difficult thing. So how do how would the DA bridge that? Well, in a, a very interesting way, we've never been a classic liberal party. We've never been a classic liberal party, and all of us have made compromises on quite critical issues at a specific moment in time. For reasons that we think are good, and for reasons that some of our colleagues think may be good, but maybe many other colleagues don't believe it's good, then one has to see who was right in the end. You can't pick on people who might have differed from you just so that you don't have to, to suffer the consequences of being wrong. So, yep, I think that we all have to try and revitalize democracy every day. But there's a difference between saying, yay, I've got freedom of speech, I can say whatever I like to, def to offend you, and you can defend yourself, but I couldn't give a damn about your offense because I've got a louder microphone, is a very different and difficult place to be. As long as we open the door more and more to having constructive debates around real issues such as were the outcomes of a certain historical event only positive or only negative. Now let's take that away from colonialism for a very long time, but nevertheless, let's apply that debate to the legacy of the World Cup. What? Was it worth it? We had all had a great time. We all had a fantastic ball. Mm. We watched games. We had sport uniting the nation again. Da, da, da. All very good attributes. Was it worth the cost and having so many white elephants dotted around the landscape all over that we're struggling to service and may well fall into disrepair? And wouldn't it have been more reliable to spend that money on in situ upgrading and community upgrading and facilities? Hmm. These are all very complex and very, very difficult questions. And so, yeah, we need to have these debates as much as we can, but in ways and on platforms and in contexts where it's possible to say things that other people actually are prepared to listen to. Okay. My concern is we're not expanding that platform. We're shutting that platform down. And with, you know, in, in uh, sort of add-on to what Ramon's saying is, the question is, is if the DA moves towards becoming ANC light, 
which uh, has been an accusation made um, on occasion. Can they can they retain their liberal their liberal um, principles? Look, that's a very good question. I think there are many liberals in South uh, in South Africa, not in the John Stuart Mill type of way, mm-hmm. but in the falsifiability Karl Popper type of way, who are compared to have open minds, hold their views strongly, listen to other arguments, change those arguments if necessary, seek to un- analyze a problem accurately and honestly, and are seen to try and break up that problem into bite-sized chunks that can, in fact, be addressed and even solved. If we can get to that point, it would be really, really very valuable, but we're a long way from that now. And going on to Jonathan's point, a lot of people blame the DA for, for losing its, uh, what you call it, its principles, so to speak. But maybe it is up to others to actually make society liberal and the DA will follow them in that way. Look, it's up to everybody to do their bit, you know. Yeah. It's absolutely up to you. I always love people when they say, you guys should do this. Well, they should do that. Now, I don't think people really always understand how hard it is to do something if you're following due process where you're supposed to be. It can take months and months and months to purchase an exercise book. And any tiny slip everybody is looking at incredibly carefully. Now, the DA must pursue its principles, but mustn't alienate voters on issues that are not core. Now, free speech is core, but if you're going to say something that offends people, you must take your punishment and your hiding. That doesn't mean to say you need need to crawl, crawl into a hole, not at all. If you want to defend your position, defend it. But you do know there are going to be consequences, and you have to take the consequences if you're prepared to stand up and fight for an idea that other people reject. Yeah, as we often say, free speech should be free, but it does does potentially carry with it consequence. So it's not free of consequence. Uh, that, that's a that's a, a that's a very ordinary definition of free speech. Anyone, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know that that is a definition. Free speech is not the ability just to shout what you want; mm. it's to accept that others will shout should, back as well. Mm. That's absolutely correct, you see, and that's that's what I'm so used to, and that's why I shout back quite often, and then people get very upset if I shout back. And it doesn't help to say, well, look what they were saying to me. They say, this isn't a school-ground play yard. Do you, do you, do you not think that there's uh, an element of a distance between our leaders? So I have no connection to the president. Um, he, I don't believe if I tweeted at him, he would even see my tweet. I'm almost guaranteed of that and if he saw it I don't believe it would be acknowledged um, and certainly with, with other leaders those who do engage, I'm thinking of uh, people like Fikile Mbalula um, and um, his uh, erstwhile spokesperson uh, um What about Esetu Hazani? Esetu is Anyway, the point is those that do engage, um, apologies for that, but those that do engage, uh, it's a, it's a very, uh, aggressive engagement. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I feel they don't listen. Let's just be honest. They're domineering, sneering, 
Well, you know, that's, that's, that's opinion. But the, the point is, is that I think you've, you've, um, been quite accessible as a politician. You made a comment the other day on Twitter that some people think you, you have, you know, m- more power than you do. Or, mm. Um, but s- status does come with some sort of power. Um, and so is it that people are put off by the fact that you, you, you seemingly act like a very normal person. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I'm yeah. saying that politicians and politics in South Africa has become almost like royalty. And so you do not question the royalty and you do not stand up to the royalty. Well, that would be very bad if that became the culture in South Africa because it's, that's, at that point, that, that democracy dies. It really does. I mean, I am a completely ordinary person and everyone who knows me knows that. Everybody who knows me knows that I try to be scrupulously fair to other people and, amazingly enough, empathetic. But I am absolutely forthright and I express my views in a very Germanic and undiplomatic way because I am incapable of distinguishing between diplomacy and hypocrisy because there's a point that the one becomes the other, but I can never quite work out where. So I'd rather just be telling the truth and saying it as I call it at a particular time. That doesn't mean to say that I can't change my mind. I start with quite strong opinions and I often change them because someone comes up with a better argument or I see something from a different perspective through something I've read or whatever. Hmm. And and let's be fair, words on a screen, it's not that massive problem. For example, Jonathan Witt, I spoke to him yesterday because I found him to be quite rude on Twitter to a potential guest and we had, we had a little disagreement. Mm-hmm. But I called him and said, Jonathan, if we want to get a potential guest, let's like act like we want them on and not, <laughs> not demand it. Yeah. And we had a little argument on the phone and then we said, okay, here's what you can do going forward. And I burnt and your house down last night. Right. <laughs> Indeed. And you killed my dogs. Yeah. yeah it's horrible. And, Terrible. But I mean, that's what we do if we have a disagreement. Now, why doesn't that happen in political parties? Well, in political parties, you get so used to it. It's part of what happens. I mean, people batter each other in political parties. I'm afraid with a jockeying for position and power and the fact that you have to reapply for your job every five years, which puts colleagues and often friends into direct competition with each other, And when people have to hang on to their income for whatever purpose, they are capable of doing things that under normal circumstances they wouldn't be able to do. So, yeah, um, I have been in a lot of debates and a lot of fights, and I felt they were worth getting into at the time. I think that some of them certainly did change the debate, and did help free things up, and did help people start debating from another perspective. But other things have closed down the door, which I think is unfortunate, and I shouldn't have done it. Do do you, maybe regret's not the right word. I I know, um, obviously, you know, with today, the apology, there have been other controversies along the way. I'm sure they have. I'm not even looking at Twitter today. (laughs) But what I want to sort of get to is um, are there there any sort of feelings that uh, the things you've done have caused sort of unnecessary damage that you could have avoided them you know there's this this comment being made at the moment that uh, the DA has scored an own goal Um, obviously that's being very well um, 
uh, sort of treaded out by the usual race baiters and the usual sort of air, um, radio hosts. Um, do you, do you think they've they've been own goals? Do you think do you think the DA will will suffer in some respects? Not only by your actions, mm-hmm. but others as well. You know, one thing I really like doing, and I'm quite good at, is taking a disaster and turning it into a positive. We did that with a massive shortage of electricity in the Western Cape and going on blackouts all the time and chasing away investors because of it. And we had to turn that around, and we did. And we've now got perhaps the fastest-growing green economy in the world, according to Moody's. We're doing exactly the same with the water economy now. I hope we can do exactly the same with the economy in Neisner and George and Plettenberg Bay and Mossel Bay and Biffles Bay and all of those places as a result of this fire disaster. We've got lots of small business there who've built a lot of homes and they can get going and we must make sure that the money gets flowing but that we don't shortcut processes. No one should be becoming a million, becoming a millionaire out of disaster relief to Neisner. The money needs to go where it needs to go, and if we we pay for people to have their houses rebuilt, we must make sure that they reach the criteria, that the conditions are fair, that they would have qualified in other circumstances or whatever it is. Otherwise, you land up in a community war, which is much worse than anything else. Okay. Has the Premier answered the question? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm so, my eyes are so droopy that I keep on wondering if I'm remembering your question by the time I get no, to the no, end. No problem. Uh, do, you think there's, do you think there's like lasting damage from this oh. kerfuffle? Kofefe. Like, Kofefe. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I should have said, I'm sorry for the kofefe. Yeah, and everyone would have known exactly that, what I said. Have, yeah, they would have done it. That would have, that would have, that would have fixed it. Wouldn't even even needed a press look, conference. Uh, look, let me, let me just say, I do think that it's caused damage. But I prefaced my remarks before failing to answer your question with the following statement. If the DA handles this well, and I am determined to contribute to handling it well, Our core project, which is the Mandela project, if I can put it that way, reconciliation, dealing with the past, getting things together to trust each other and to work into the future, could have quite a a salutary outcome of this, actually. I I don't know if I, with respect, I don't know if I follow with this, the, the Mandela, sorry, what did you call it? The Mandela? Project. Mandela project. All you need, in my humble opinion, being a non politician, is economic growth. Once you have economic growth, people actually work together, they trade together, they have to live with each other because they share the same wealth or status or class. So reconciliation, all that happens quite naturally. I completely agree with that. And and some of the best places with racial reconciliation are workplaces. People get on with each other, they like each other, they learn to trust each other. Obviously not all, but mostly. And uh, that looks... Very positive because, you know, people say often I have past opinion on race that I know that they don't think the person sitting in the room is of another race, you know, because they're just good friends and they get on with life. And, of course, that's, uh, that's the ideal situation. You want people to, be, to know each other as people. But the reason that I think this could be quite positive in the long run is It was necessary, well, I never really understood that. It was necessary that Musi put his very firm stamp on the party. And he certainly did that. 
He certainly said, on my watch, we're not tolerating this. And perhaps I was a little bit naive to remain on the FedEx or the Federal Council or the Provincial Council at the end of my term as leader because it's really difficult to be a leader and a new leader in a political party and have the ex-leader sitting in the room where all decisions are made and chirping away when it suits her. That is very, very difficult, and I understand it with everything I've got. Do you do you feel, though, that there is enough? Because I, I don't want a, 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 a DA party, or, or any party for that matter, where everyone in the room is thinking the same. I want um, con- contrary views um, to be brought up. Um, with, with, within that environment, certainly in our government, where it's going to directly affect me and other citizens. Um, do you feel that there are enough contrary views so that it's not just support, dear leader? No, definitely. There's no question about it. Musi is an exceptionally good listener and good at taking a hard line on issues if he isn't convinced by your argument. And he takes some very, very strong lines on issues. And in that sense, all those trolls who've been carrying on and on for years that I'm the real leader of the DA must just wake up and smell the coffee. I'm absolutely not. And to drive that home, I've got off every decision-making body on which I was entitled to stand as the DA. Every single one. So I have no role. I can't take a decision. I can answer if someone asks me a question. I can certainly have an opinion, as long as I don't have an offensive opinion that I tweet, and all of the other things like that. So I do believe that if we're going to save the project of being able to argue and disagree, we have to save the DA. Speaking of Mercy, you you well known for, for having discovered him and groomed him. Are you happy with how he's turned out? As a, He seems quite a, not a strident leader, but he, he's putting his stamp on it. Are, are you happy with his his demeanor and his character in doing so. Yes, I am. I think he's a fundamentally kind person with a very tough streak. You can't survive in politics without a tough streak. But he's got the right balance because he errs on the side of kindness and generosity. I also think he is a genuinely committed non-racialist. And the tools troll him as much as me, which is a bloody miracle because he's got a much, much, much fewer followers. But he's got much fewer followers because he's been on Twitter for a very short time. I've been on Twitter for years and years and years and years. And every confefe I've been involved in has got me a whole lot more followers, which isn't necessarily a good thing. And especially the time you blocked me for three years in a row, I must be honest. Jeez, <laughs> was it only three he's, years? He's still, he's still going to hang on to it. And then I was unblocked and then followed within two seconds. I was extremely surprised. Well, you, well, you asked me to, so I did. I did, yes. I don't promise and, to and, not follow up. And thank you, Premier, for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also wrote in your book, From One Troll to Another. Indeed you did. Yeah. You remember that? I remember that. You must have signed thousands of books. And I have signed know. thousands of books, but what I remember thinking, what, what's okay for this dude? Aha. I'm going to tell him that he's a troll. And, he's, so a, and he's an honest troll. That's all I can yeah. say. Well, I'm also an honest troll, but sometimes I say the wrong things. And then I'm very sorry well, about it. Depends, depends who you ask. Yeah. What, depends who you ask. what are the wrong things? So, uh, you know, we've... we've You've said you've mentioned about offence, and you've mentioned about um, being being somewhat cautious, specifically in the environment in which you speak. But 
you know, if, if we're going to go down the freedom of speech route, which you've mentioned, which we've agreed is very important to democracy, needs to be pegged very high um, and, you know, has to really have very little, um, has to have a lot as a breaking point. Um, what is, what is, what is the line? Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very, very good question. I've been asking myself that for a long time, and I don't even know what analogy to draw on. There are some things that some people can't say without attracting more attention than other people who might have said similar things. Now, apartheid and history is so overbearing and so overburdening in South Africa that people especially quickly take offense to any white person saying something that is offending, even though there was no intention to make it offending or anything else. Now, then I must ask, is it then right to stop people from speaking? I would say no, it isn't right. But it may well be right to have a tough debate about it as we've had about this, and I have set out my position, as you've seen. <coughs> so, I think we need to be, move more and more to the ideal state where anyone can say anything. Okay. Except hate speech. Except hate speech. And I agree with the Constitution's definition of hate speech. I don't like the way some people run to that hate speech clause every time they're offended. Well, they, they, they don't uh, look at the second line. That's, yeah, that's common, commonly what yeah, happens. Of course they don't. They don't ask themselves whether this particular statement encourages imminent violence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Ramon? Yeah, sorry, I just have uh, one, one question. If, hypothetically, I make a claim that within 10 years, there is a classically liberal pro-black Party. So, assuming assuming the ANC from say ninety four before the cadre de deployments and all that nonsense, but assuming there is a, a classically liberal black party, do you think the DA would be under immense pressure to compete with a party such as that? Well, first of all, it's a complete myth to think that the ANC pre nineteen ninety four was highly liberal. I happen to be very involved in many organisations. That were by and large, not entirely, but by and large, fronts for the ANC internally in South Africa. And I didn't know to any particular specific liberal leanings to any extent. What was important was the commitment to non-racialism, and that was really, really good. And the commitment to many other things, also reconciliation, I thought was very good. But I think there will be a black, a majority black liberal party in South Africa. And I also think that people might not use the term liberal at every occasion when discussing that party. But I think the more we govern, the more the DA will become the catalyst for that party and, in fact, will be the center of that party. So if, for example, you had a contest between A and B. I don't want to mention any names in spe specifically in, in the ANC for the presidency of the country. It is highly likely, depending on which way the ANC splits, that coalitions and options for different coalitions are going to become very, very interesting. Now, I am a liberal in the sense of really believing in the sanctity of the individual, 
but I'm not liberal in many other ways. I believe that the state has a critical role to play in the economy, but more and more liberals are accepting that. I know you don't, but I do believe it. And I can see how well it works when I go to certain places. And it goes with incredible efficiency and no corruption and no self-enrichment. Because the state's job is to join all the dots. Which economic centers, sectors are showing signs of really serious growth? Have we got the right pipeline of skills? If not, where do we get the right pipeline of skills? How can we then match what people are learning at tertiary institutions with the skills that are needed? How are we going to have training programs that can enable people to reskill? All of these things are critical questions that the government has to be asking and answering in one area alone, which is how do people get skills for jobs? And um, those things are very complex and often a classical liberal view towards them may not necessarily be the only answer or the best answer. It smells like pragmatism to me. <laughs> I am quite pragmatic. I am quite pragmatic. I go with what works. If you are going to be sitting there, for as for example I was, when I had a complex seven-party coalition to run, if I had nitpicked on every detail, we wouldn't have lost a week. And I can tell you, we would not have been lasting a week. Then you've got to say to ourselves, do we live to fight another election with a great unlikelihood that we're going to last that long? And if you say, well, let's give it a bash, and we are going to make sure that we pick our battles, then you get very pragmatic about a lot of other things. It's just the the danger comes in is you know the means to the end type of yeah, debate. Type uh, look, of means argument. to the end debate is a critically important one, and I think that as the wounds of apartheid heal, we will be able to have those debates more and more. And especially if there are a lot of liberals around who say, "Hey, we don't all agree on this. This is a politically correct mindset. Um, it's it's the only one that's allowed to be postulated." And in fact, I don't agree and I'm going to put it on the table now. Mm. There will always be a controversy and there always has been a controversy, but there always will be people who do it. And I think slowly, if we can get the economy to grow, and that's a big if, it's going to make it much more easier to do that. But see, I always say it's not the economy stupid, it's the politics stupid. Because until we get our political policies right and clean, effective, hardworking, uncorrupt government – you're not going to get the economy right, and you're not going to get the economic growth that you need. And so I'm fascinated as to how one gets to the point where one gets a government in power that can do the things that are required to facilitate economic growth. And I've been gobsmacked by the extent some countries have achieved that and other countries have not achieved that. And I've spent a lot of time analyzing why that is. You just have to look at the difference between Vietnam and Cambodia, for example, to see that extraordinary difference and to see Vietnam flourishing after going through such agony for literally a millennium. And you see other countries that don't. You can look on our continent between Botswana and Zimbabwe. Hmm. There are contrasts everywhere. And then you've got to ask yourself, why? And it's never all that easy, but I think that Francis Fukuyama has come closest to analyzing why. 
And in a sense, he comes down to three classically liberal ideas, the rule of law, which is the central and non-negotiable idea, a culture, a whole social culture of accountability, as well as a capable state. Those three things. And you can't find a single country anywhere that has really succeeded in building an inclusive society and economy that has not had those three things. All right, so we've we've grilled you on you for an hour and, and, and a little bit around this this whole tweet storm. Um what about uh, what about the country? Where do other than vote DA and and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and we want to win the next election? What are the what are the big things that need to stop happening? I mean, yes, we we know we've got a, a single family who have clearly had influence in the government that has caused a lot of damage. Um, we've had arguably a negligent president. Um, what are what are the the sort of big things? We need to do a, one of the podcasts that inspired us to do this used to ask the question, if you were president for a day, so I imagine you're not going to be that now, but if you were president for a day, what would you do? You know what you'd do? You'd run into a brick wall. You'd want to do a hell of a lot of things and you wouldn't be able to do them because you wouldn't be able to procure anything. You wouldn't be able to take a decision without a particular mandate. You wouldn't, I mean, you couldn't even write up a tender in a day. Let's make the claim. You can be president for a year with with absolute power. Just mm, make benevolent the claim. dictator. Benevolent. What? What? I don't know. What? What? What would you implement? How many things not? do you want? Well, first, first of all, you cut away at least like sixty percent of the states as it stands. Now that's you, man. Ask me. <laughs> right, Madame Premier. Okay. What would you do? Okay. What I would do is. I would make sure that every woman had an education before she made a decision to have a child. That would be number one. Because when you've got an education and a wider view of the world and of your own place in it, and you don't see your pathway into the future as necessarily being just dependent on social grants and a man who may or may not care about his children, it changes the entire dynamic of a society. So the first thing I would do is provide incentives for children not to fall pregnant. When I say children, I'm talking children. You know, this is not an exaggeration. Yeah, I, would say, I can back that up. No. I would say get an education, a serious education with some skills that are aligned, aligned to where the economy is going and get a job. And so this whole old-fashioned notion of going to school, getting an education, dating and marrying the right person and having a child with someone that you believe will be your partner in that unbelievably important endeavor is something that I would very much like to encourage through whatever incentivization we can do without encroaching on people's freedoms. So that's number one. Number two, I would genuinely make corruption almost impossible in government. And I would make sure that we introduced a fitness for purpose policy, which is the phrase that I've been using for many years in the Democratic Alliance, that anybody gets a job is fit to do that particular job. And I would never allow people to have discretion and a monopoly of discretion and decision-making power without mechanisms for oversight and accountability because that's what leads to corruption. So that's a long way of saying I would build a capable and accountable and competent state. 
Then I would move very quickly into ensuring that that state was doing things that builds the economy and that aligns our education system to what the economy is doing and the skills that are becoming available through that economy. And I would try and ensure that people understood more and more that the pathway to the future is not a free house from the government and a grant at the end of the month. The pathway into the future is personal responsibility, initiative, hard work, and personal accountability. That's what we talk about, a culture of accountability. So that, is that enough? Those are the things I would do. Yeah, I think I disagree with most of them, but okay. uh, that's just me. I, I, would, I would devolve power to um, provinces. Mm-hmm. And uh, what else would I do? I, uh, I, I, would, I thought you were going to say you would just dissolve the yeah, state. I would, I would actually. I would take away uh, healthcare, <laughs> school, everything like that, because I think people can do that stuff so much better than can, the state. Can, and it's not sorry, yeah. not, it's not due to lack of will or intention. It's just that it is millions. Of, you cannot bureaucracies cannot create. Um, how can I explain? Millions of people. You don't have to explain to me. Believe me, I work in a bureaucracy. Right. And I work in a bureaucracy that is hamstrung with more rules and regulations that you can ever dream up because there's such a massive attempt to prevent corruption. Now, somehow, all of that stuff doesn't prevent people from being corrupt if they choose to. It just prevents people who don't want to be corrupt from doing the things that need to be done and taking four bloody ever to do it. It also is difficult because if you're running your own small business, which I have done, and I wish everyone would do that because then you see how precious every single minute of the day is. That's what really gave me my work ethic, this knowing how precious every single minute of the day is. If everyone knew that, there would be no such thing as saying, well, I'm going on leave now. I'm going to leave this full in tray and we'll see what happens next. Or, well, I'm finished for the day. There's no such. Mm -hmm. And in societies with that kind of culture, you see that bureaucracies work much, much, much more more smoothly and efficiently. But we've got a red tape unit now in the Western Cape, which is doing brilliant work. So if anybody jumps up against a snag of red tape, they just phone the red tape unit and they jump into action and they find out where the problem is and remove it. And believe me, I've used that unit in my own government more than once. Yeah, I, I don't disagree as much as Ramon does. That's um, good. I, I want to. Yeah, he's an anarchist. I actually am classical liberal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you are since you met me. Um, oh, please. Uh, right. So, <laughs> so um, uh, just some quick fire things because like education, for example, yeah. really important. Yeah. What do you feel about uh, education vouchers? I don't think they're a bad idea at all. I like the idea of funding the child, not the school and of maximizing choice. I think that that is a very important idea and that we need to move more and more towards it. What I know is that the biggest problem in our education system is we don't have enough quality. And what I completely agree with is that because in a private sector you don't have all the huge institutions like trade unions and layers and layers of bureaucracy, one of our big challenges is to get independent schools for low-income parents. So vouchers would certainly help that, and I think that that would help the quality tremendously. So I look at everything that could improve quality in education, and I would support that. You want to go for one? uh, No. Okay. No, not really. All I want to know, I mean, have you 
we are running out of time fairly quickly. Yes, and I don't want to miss my plane. Indeed, indeed. So my last question. Your private jet, of course. <laughs> can, can you just tell your bodyguard to stop aiming his MP5 automatic <laughs> machine gun at me, please? Hey, I, my, my son gave me a lift here and I'm yeah, going I to the can, airport can, in an Uber, I so can, calm I can, down. I can verify that. <laughs> I can verify that. I, I actually wanted to ask you about your blue light brigade, but you don't have one. So, I don't, man. No, it's unbelievable. So my question for you. Uh, Premier, it's 2019. Whenever the election happens, you stop your. As soon term. as the race war room is back right, up and running, right? The race mm. war room is up and coming. It's, um, you stop being the premier. Mm. Knowing you for an hour and a half, either you're going to go to some godforsaken place on the coast somewhere and never be seen again, or don't s- talk about Langenborn like that. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or that's the only thing I can see. Or you're going to stay in. In politics and do something really dramatic Look I love writing So I always write And I've got another book up my sleeve Coming right now So all of that is going to be A good load of fun to do And I've got a granddaughter Who is really the apple of my eye And I want to almost live in a cottage in the garden of my children's place, although I don't think that they'll think that's such a great idea. (laughs) So what I'd like to do is be around close by. But I have got a number of options, and I'd love if the DA forgives me enough ever to run a political school for the DA because I know what it's like to be in every sphere of government. I know what it's like to navigate red tape. I know what it's like to take a political philosophy, turn it into a series of policies, land the policies in a budget, and then implement them in government. And believe me, those steps are not as easy as they sound. Well, just my one recommendation from me. Come 2019, just start a podcast. You'll have <laughs> free speech. That's a bad idea. You'll have free speech. You'll be uncensored. You can talk about anything you want. And people and you, you might rival us in terms of downloads, but still a while to go. Listen, dudes, I have the looks for radio, but I don't have the voice. That's my problem. And neither does Ramon. Don't worry. Yeah, I've got nothing for radio. <laughs> but Ra- Ra- sure I am. Ramon's voice will get better. Mine is permanently like this. They couldn't find an actress to act my puppet because of my voice. <laughs> All right. Well, so you, 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 you might retire, become a writer and look after your kids, but uh, you might uh, train the next up and coming group. Oh, there are lots of things that I'm, I'm thinking about. I'm interested just in terms of the up-and-coming group, there seems to be, within all of our political parties at the moment, there seems to be this view that you need to be trained to lead. Um, Why is that? That's a very good question. I think that leaders are intrinsically born, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about the attributes that leaders should have, and there are several. But... What I do believe is that you can learn a lot of things that are incredibly useful. Just take this. It's Constitutional Law 101. When you're in government, you cannot do anything that you're not specifically allowed to do in a law or empowered to do in a law. Now, it would be very nice if I'd known that from the beginning, right? Because you come in with an idea of what you want to do, and you say, now, let's do this, 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 this. And people say, well, that's not covered by a law. But I said, well, so what? It's our policy. Let's do it. Let's do it. Oh, no. And then you've got to have a white paper and a green paper and this and that. To pass a law takes two and a half years. This is why Ramon hates government. And then then you need regulations as well. But you need those kinds of things. I mean, Weber on bureaucracy 
is very interesting. You've got to prevent arbitrary behavior and power abuse. And the market is a very good thing for preventing that, but often not enough because look what happened to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and all of those sorts of things. And more than that, people can be highly corrupt in the private sector as well. But in government, we need to ensure that we have as much bureaucracy to keep the system fair and equitable and accountable as necessary, but as little as possible. And that's the balance that is really hard to get right. Jeez, that sounds like a fairy tale. No, it isn't. I mean, you know, we in the Western Cape are getting as close as you can possibly do it. But it takes a hell of a lot of nagging from me and a lot of dedicated overtime from many, many colleagues and officials. I mean, I regularly go into work on a Sunday and the offices are buzzing, buzzing. And I phone people day and night. I'm notorious for that. What's happening to this? What's going on here? What's happening there? Who's following up this? Who's doing that? And people have learned to work through the system um, quite smoothly. And I've, I've set up a new methodology that was really pioneered by Michael Barber to get some game changers in government and to drive them through relentlessly to meet critical deadlines. And that's what I do. I've even got an app on my phone. I can show you how I do it and, and, and follow up every single budget and every single deadline that needs to be followed up. Well, one last question. So, sure, Premier. One, so there's, there's this immigration towards the Cape yeah. over the past uh, some… Five been, to ten years some, probably. You, some, you've increased your population uh, down there. Yeah, quite substantially. <laughs> So now, are you joking? Are you kidding me? So now, um, are they drinking a lot of water? I'm sorry, the people from uh, Gauteng are very, very thirsty. These bloody Gautengers must learn to drink wine. What's their case, man? <laughs> so there's a hell of a lot of people now in the Western Cape. Assuming the rest of South Africa doesn't change, but you remain in control of the Western Cape, the DA that is. What about uh, secession? No, we can't secede. Damn it! I'm, I'm really sorry, but we can't secede. Because of this, we're part of one country. And the great thing about our constitution writers was that they did make it possible for one party to win in one province and another party to win in another province. And then we can have a good comparative yardstick and control group as to which policies work and which don't work. The job really is not secession. The job is to make the transition so that all voters, whatever their history, whatever the color of their skin, can discuss policy, discuss past successes and failures, and make a judgment on that. I'm amazed at what happened with Theresa May. She lost her majority on the questions of policy, and that is a mature democracy. When South Africa can lose elections because people really understand the policy and either do like it or don't like it, we will have made a massive transition in this country. All right, Tom. That's don't have much more to say to that. Well, yeah. what can we say, Helen? I can ask you one question. Yes, please. How do you pronounce your surname? Cabernac. Cabernac. As it's spelled. Oh, okay. with some French flair. I'm, also, I'm also a refugee into this country. Oh, my goodness. And you, Jonathan? Originally as well. How, how far back? Uh, in the... Early 20th century. Oh, no, that makes you a colonialist. Sorry. <laughs> oh, my well, word. Well, you know. I arrived in 1989. Fleeing, fleeing, so. fleeing the Nazis is… Uh, <laughs> I know. My parents also are fleeing the Nazis. I was only joking. Please don't take I'm, offense. I'm deeply I, offended. I will going be going to, be... to the Human Rights Commission straight after this. 
and so sorry. Uh, lodging a complaint. It was meant to be a joke. Oh, damn it. Damn it. They're going to edit out that two-word two sentence. And you know, yeah, you. that's what's, that's headline news, City but Press anyway, tomorrow. Anyway, Helen, thank you so much for We're, your time. It's a great pleasure. I really, really appreciate Ramon, it. It's a great pleasure. And you have an open invitation to come on whenever you want to. Great. Well, I've enjoyed the chat with you. I really have enjoyed the chat with you. I thought you were going to pummel me like uh, Stephen Sackett did on No, we're, we're uh, quite uh, open about uh, our biases. We, we're trying to be charitable to everyone who comes on. Yep. Oh, Stephen Sackett pummeled me. But that's very good of you. Thank you very much because I wasn't ready for a pummeling today. A, yeah. I've got flu. And B... You got one this morning. <laughs> it's been a rough day. It has been a rough day. No, I mean, this is not a rough day, believe me. You don't I know reckon. rough days. <laughs> rough days are having two little boys and starting a business at the same time. Nothing has come close to that ever again in my life. Awesome. Madam Premier, thank you for joining us. It's been great having you on the show. Ramon, final words? Um, none. Before I um, cut you off. Support us on Patreon, please, if you like what you hear. The mugs, yeah. for those who are supporting us on Patreon, the mugs are being made. Stop sending me spam SMSs at 2 o'clock in the morning, please. They're on their way. They'll be ready in a few weeks. As Ramon mentioned, patreon.com, just search Renegade Reports. You can support the show. If you haven't heard some of our other shows, please do go back and have a listen. Well worth your while. You can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore reports. You can find Ramon at Roman Kabanak. Myself, Jonathan Witt at Jonathan underscore Witt. And uh, then that's it for the week. Please catch us next time. Cheers. Bye. Cliffcentral.com.